0: Episode 296 Oncology FAQs about telehealth, standardizing care, and drug prices. Today I speak with Vincent Rajkumar, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know talking, relentlessly seeking value. My guest today is Vincent Rajkumar, M.D. Dr. Rajkumar is a professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. He's also a practicing hematologist at the Mayo Clinic with a focus on multiple myeloma. Dr. Rajkumar does research and conducts clinical trials. He's a well-known thought leader in questions about the cost of drugs in this country versus other countries. So let me tell you what happened with this episode. I mentioned to a few people I would be speaking with Dr. Rajkumar, and every single person I mentioned it to sent me questions to ask him. So that happened. I wound up with way too many questions. Thus, I spent my Thursday evening organizing said questions into some semblance of a logical order. Today, we talk about telehealth and oncology. We talk about standardizing treatment pathways in oncology amidst the growing complexity of said treatments and how this could potentially help community oncologists and generalists. We wrap things up with Dr. Rajkumar's insights on the high price of oncology and other drugs. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Vincent Rajkumar, MD, welcome
1: to Relentless Health Value. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Let me just start with, are you ready? I am ready. What is the perspective on the explosion of telehealth and its impact on oncology?
1: I think telehealth is here to stay. I think uh, COVID greatly accelerated what was going to happen eventually anyway. But we've all understood that that there are many aspects of care in oncology as well as in rest of medicine. One is the actual delivery. How do you give the treatment to the patient, chemotherapy, medications? And that requires a face-to-face visit or a visit to the hospital or the clinic. But there are many other aspects of care that can be done remotely. For many, many patients with cancer, the real question is, what is the best treatment for my disease? What are the best tests that I need to do? How do I follow the treatment? Am I doing well? And these are questions that you can answer if you have access to good history, uh, laboratory data, and a face-to-face consultation with the patient either over the phone or or by video. And you can recognize that a lot of this can be done remotely, but there are elements that need the face-to-face, need the travel and in those instances we tell them hey i think I, I it's very hard for me to make this judgment call unless i actually see you i think it's an it's going to be a very important component of healthcare delivery and it's here to stay and it will complement and augment what we are already doing
0: so you bring up something really interesting i'm going to say an upward trend line in patient going to a center of excellence for either a second opinion or for somebody to help them determine what the best course of treatment is, but then potentially going somewhere else for the actual treatment itself. I mean, we've got employers who are selecting centers of excellence to perform this role it almost sounds like you are regarding the surge in telehealth as either aiding and abetting or at a minimum in alignment with the increase in that second opinion and or center of excellence model.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, cancer has become extraordinarily complex. I mean, for every single cancer, there are far more new drugs in the last 10 years than were there you know, in all the years prior. It is very hard as an oncologist to keep up with everything. So many, many oncologists in private practice actually appreciate the fact that they can get a quick second opinion from someone else. Patients derive a lot of comfort in knowing that someone else has looked at their story and their history and has come up with the recommendation that can be delivered closer to home. So yes, it is aiding telehealth, aids patients in getting that second opinion, which now is increasingly more important because of the complexity of oncology.
0: Now, did you mention that not only patients are using the telehealth opportunity, but also other clinicians? So you're having more, you're having dialogues actually with, you know, more generalist community based oncologists relative to treatments for certain patients they might have?
1: Absolutely. Previously, it used to be like informal curbside consultations, like a phone call or something. Nowadays, you can even have a formalized process where you can deliver that second opinion and help oncologists. So this e-consults that we do, sometimes it just requires documentation review. Sometimes you actually have to speak to the physician and hear about the story and what's going on, clarify some doubts. You know, you'd be surprised. So many physicians are happy to discuss. And it's not just generalists. I mean, I'm a myeloma physician. If I have a lymphoma patient, I am calling my lymphoma colleagues.
0: Let me ask you this, you know, just kind of given exactly what you just said, the increasing complexity of cancer treatment, you've got biomarkers, you've got risk stratifications, you've got the new therapies, like you mentioned. Do you think that the average community oncologist can still be a generalist? You know, do do you think it's possible to have in a way, you know, community oncologists who are treating melanoma in the morning and lymphoma in the afternoon, you know, and or do you think that with the advent of technology, it makes it more possible?
1: For most questions, the answer is pretty straightforward. What is the first line treatment for diffuse large B cell lymphoma? What, what is the first line treatment for multiple myeloma or colon cancer? These are well established. They have the resources. They don't have to be encyclopedic in their mind. They have the up-to-dates. They have the online resources. They can reach out to get immediate information for a rare tumor or a recurrent tumor. And then if they're not satisfied, they can reach out to people and get a formal e-consult or a telehealth consult.
0: Let's just state in arguendo mm-hmm. that conflict of interest is a thing and that obviously, you know, I did a podcast about kind of perverted incentives of buy and bill that the more expensive a drug, the more an oncologist gets paid to deliver the drug. So there's this inherent incentive to prescribe and, and dispense the most expensive pharmaceutical products. Do you feel like having some of these centers of excellence and having these e-consults from people who aren't actually going to be delivering the drug does something to countermand the inherent conflicts of interest?
1: That's really an excellent question. I hadn't even thought of that, but that conflict is there. My problem with the conflict is the existence of the conflict, that we shouldn't have a conflict like that uh, at all. And so I'm very much in favor of reforming the ASP plus 6% and going to a fixed flat fee reimbursement so that physicians get reasonable reimbursement regardless of which drug they choose. But in the situations where a second opinion or anything else is needed, uh, yes, uh, getting an opinion from some other place will mitigate you know, any conflicts that there are, but it's not the solution. The solution is just not have the conflict in the first place because the vast majority of these don't result in second opinions. I'm fully aware that we can't have community oncologys practices survive if the reimbursement is very low because these drugs are very expensive, buying and storing them and administering them. And these are all complicated things. So the reimbursement structure has to be reformed in a way that is fair keeps the practices alive, but at the same time is not like conflicted to the extent that you will get 6% of $600 if you gave uh, Taxol, but you will get 6% of $6,000 if you gave abraxane. I mean, that's a conflict that you shouldn't be in the position of dealing with.
0: And so you said that you are heavily involved in advocating for a Fixed flat fee reimbursement, you know. So finding a number that makes sense for the work that's involved in doing and administering a product. How are you doing there? Do you feel like it's something? You know, there was a whole Part B reform that was attempted a couple of years ago and managed to get shot down in a ball of flames. What's your sense of the feasibility and the viability of a flat fee reimbursement in oncology?
1: So for actually administering the drug, uh, the chair time and everything else, that's a separate fee. The, the fee that we are referring to for Part B drugs is, uh, is you're allowed to bill for the drug itself ASP plus 6%. So during the Obama administration, there was a pilot that was planned as a randomized trial based on zip codes that half the country would be just doing the same thing and the other half would have a flat fee reimbursement, a certain dollar amount. Fifty dollars, no matter which drug you prescribe, even if it's uh, if, even if the drug costs fifty dollars, you would still give another fifty dollars on top of it, or something, some number like that, hundred dollars, whatever. But that didn't work. That was shot down. Many people protested it. I am not sure why there was so much um, opposition to that because they could have negotiated the exact reimbursement number that would fit it. And in any case, it was a randomized trial. Uh, you would have found out at the end of the trial. Did giving a flat fee actually reduce healthcare costs? Did it actually reduce unnecessary use of expensive chemo? But we couldn't do that. And I think hopefully in the next few years, that reform will happen because that conflict has to be removed. And I think many people will agree that uh, what they are opposing is unfair reimbursement, but they're okay with as long as it's a reasonable reimbursement that makes it... Because, you know, average sales price means... A very, very big institution can get a deep discount. And for them, 6% over sales price is actually 10% over sales price. And a small practice may be buying it even at higher cost than 6% over the sales average sales price. So you have to keep that in mind when you decide on what's a fair reimbursement. But I think that model would certainly work and help. Patients also will feel more assured that there is no other factor making this decision. Because you wouldn't know which drug is best. You have to trust the oncologist. And you need to know that for sure that there is no other factor that's determining which specific drug that they're recommending for you.
0: I'm going to switch gears and go to another listener question here. What's your perspective on trying to standardize care? As you brought up at the very top of this conversation, that there's a right way to do certain things. Like it is documented, there is a pathway. However, with oncology, there has been sort of this tussle relative to standardizing care. What do you see? in the future the likelihood that there are going to be sort of you know defined pathways that most people are actually
1: using? I think it's very high probability I mean it's first of all it's complex secondly it's just such a vast amount of information that no one person can keep up and they're going to be happier to have a pathway to follow and thirdly the cost situation you know you you want a pathway to provide the most cost-effective care, the best care in the most cost-effective manner possible. So I'm a very strong believer in treatment pathways and I've advocated for having very strict guidelines. For example, if a guideline says you could use A, B, C, D or E, then it's basically a free-for-all. But if a guideline says A is really the preferred treatment, it's really what you should do for most patients. Only like in the rare instances would you go to B and never to C, D or E then that really gives clarity on what the best thing to do would be. And it's impossible for everyone to know every pathway. So the more we integrate these pathways into the electronic medical record and say, here's the proposed pathway... Most patients we see, particularly in the newly diagnosed setting, you could have a nice pathway that you can create. The more recurrences happen, it becomes more complicated to come up with a pathway that will address the patient in front of you. There, it may be important to give guidelines like, you know, these are the two or three options that you could choose. But I think I support pathways and I think that there will be more use of these pathways. Insurance companies will come up with more pathways that will help both the physician as well as their own bottom line. And as long as it's done, same thing, you know, with trust that we are doing it for the best interest of the patient and we're doing it to make sure that we give the most cost effective care. So everything has to be done with the purpose that, you know, the best cost effective care is the best care.
0: You had mentioned insurance companies setting up these pathways. Do you feel like that they have the knowledge and credibility to do that in a way that actually preserves the patient's best interest or that they're going to get sucked into kind of the same economic conflicts of interest that from the other direction providers have?
1: A lot of factors here that you just mentioned. Number one is the pathways have to be set up by non-conflicted experts. It can be done by insurance companies as, you know, in terms of setting it up. But the pathway itself, the content of the pathway is not insurance company. They assemble a group of experts who don't have a stake, who don't have a conflict of interest to do that. And it can also be done outside the insurance companies by reputed organizations or high profile academic institutions, which feel that they have an expertise that they can offer and then make it available for the public. Again, transparency, just make sure everybody knows this is what we are recommending because it shouldn't be done in secret either. I do work with uh, United Healthcare on one of their, just in the last month or two, on one of their pathway committees uh, for oncology. And that's how it is set up. Uh, United Healthcare does not set the pathways. Those of us who are doctors, who are oncologists, who are not conflicted, we examine the data and say, yes, this is the best treatment for myeloma in the newly diagnosed setting that's how it should be that the pathways should be designed and developed by people who don't have a financial stake and who don't have a financial conflict either you can have pathways that are outside insurance companies because they can't do it for everything which are truly designed to help physicians make the right decisions and patients know what those recommendations are 10-15 years ago for example We have a huge myeloma group at Mayo Clinic. We have probably the largest group in the world with almost 25 people involved in the research and treatment of myeloma. And we came together and formed a website called msmart.org, which now is used by physicians around the world to figure out how to treat multiple myeloma. And we basically provide pathways. And we did it 15 years ago, mainly because we said, you know, it's not possible for every myeloma patient to come to Mayo, but we feel like we have a role to provide a service to offer, which is this is what we would do if we had myeloma. I mean, we are giving away the recipe.
0: And does that create issues if you're an oncologist? Because maybe, you know, the insurance company says, well, I'm going to follow the Mayo msmart.org guidelines for myeloma, but you know maybe another insurance company is not and they're doing their separate thing. You know what I'm saying? Like If you've got all these sort of different entities which are creating what they are saying are the best pathways, in the absence of that all rolling up into one, this is what we're doing here, how does that affect patient care in general?
1: It's hard to do it for, you know, one size fit all for everyone because the cost availability of drugs varies across the country. Uh, What you can say is if you have access to the drugs and it's reasonably priced and you can afford it, this is what we would do. And then from there, you branch off into I don't have that treatment or I disagree with that recommendation and I would rather do this instead. But as long as you make that determination and make it transparent, like Mayo recommends VRD, but we actually are convinced DRD is the best. Therefore, this is what we are going to follow. But then then at least you have the pathway that says that DRD is our regimen of choice. You don't say that you could use any of these 10 regimens.
0: You know, you had mentioned putting it in the EHR system. So if I am an oncologist and I am looking to use the best treatment pathway for the patient sitting in front of me, Do you feel like I should be able to rely on my EHR system to take all the data and collate it and and present the pathway options to me? Or is that so futuristic? It's like the Jetsons.
1: No, I, I really hope that's where we are going. I mean, we are so advanced in the computer science and, you know, all these AI and algorithms. It's really important that the point of delivery, you know, you're ready to write the prescription. You should have the resources in, embedded in the EHR itself rather than having to close that and go to the Internet Explorer and Google or something. So it's better that it's all built in and it requires a lot of work, but it's better if it's there. Again, you don't have to do it for every single disease, like 80% of the diseases that we encounter, you could, there might be just a very small number of pathways that will cover all of that. You start with that. You start with what are the most common things that these people see and make sure that there is support for that.
0: What do you think that the current state is? You know, so we've got our aspirational state, which is you've got a clinical decision support for reals in the EHR system, you know, in the clinical workflow. Where are we now? You know, so if I would just put a finger on a map and say, I'm going to look at this particular oncology center's EHR system. How close are they on the average at the top of the bell curve to having care standardized in this fashion within the clinical workflow?
1: Where it hasn't gone so far is is the real pathway itself like this is what we actually prefer? And I think it'll get there, but there's a lot of interest in that, and so I'm sure it'll happen. Part of the problem for physicians is you want to deliver the best care, so there's also the affordability issue, as well as you know whether the patient has access because of either you know the cost of the drug or whether the drug is actually available for them. There's no easy way to find that out how much does the drug actually cost, how much. Will the patient's out-of-pocket be? Those are things most physicians have no idea about and there's no easy way for them to find out. And so if those are also built in, that will also help. Like if you this is what we recommend and if you do this for this patient, this is how much it's going to cost and this is probably how much out-of-pocket. I, you know, I had a patient uh, the other day, not at Mayo Clinic, where I was just recommending a regimen and and then two weeks later they called and said, sorry, I can't I can't take that because that's not affordable. And so then we had to change. So it's something that there's no easy way for physicians to find out in a busy schedule. And so that also if it's embedded into the EMR, that'll be great.
0: There are a number of companies that are popping up in the dispensed at the pharmacy side of the equation where it is lifetime that actually within the clinical workflow for, you know, Lipitor, yeah. it will tell you, you know, the small molecule drugs, it will tell you what the price is for that, pr- that exact patient. I mean, not like on average patients that have this yeah. insurance company, but just like for you, this drug is going to cost you this much if you go to this pharmacy, It, it like even breaks it up by pharmacy. But because a lot of the drugs used in oncology and some other specialties as well are infused, it becomes, it's a whole other question. Exactly. So that's interesting that that could be certainly something to work on. So speaking of the price of some of these drugs and the number of employers who are incredibly concerned about the price of oncology care amongst other specialty products for rare diseases or other you know, specialty situations, maybe is the best way to put it. What advice might you have for employers who are deathly afraid that one of their employees is going to wind up with being appropriate, frankly, for some of these gene therapies or get hemophilia or, you know, any of some of these other conditions that have notoriously incredibly high prices. Given the work that you do, how might yeah. you counsel them to consider
1: this? What you raise is very important because the employees for the large part want to do the best for their employees. It's really helpful to them to have employees healthy and safe. And they are, playing, they are paying premiums and they want to make sure for the premiums I pay, my employee best better get good care. If it means like unaffordable types of drugs for everyone, then it also is not sustainable. What my advice would be like, there are no allies in this fight for lower prescription drug costs. Everybody from pharmaceutical companies, PBMs, everyone seems to benefit from a high price. And so what we need is... The other side where people are out there asking for reforms for lower drug prices. It's very straightforward policy changes that we need. Number one is value based pricing, which every other country has a developed country. If a drug works only for one week, you cannot ask for a price that is the same as a drug that works for one year. And secondly, Medicare directly being able to negotiate for the best price like the VA does. So if employers were to take this on and say, like, you know, we are the people paying the bills, we are the people paying the insurance companies, we need to make sure that that we are getting value for money and the prices cannot be rampantly increased as and when pharmaceutical companies want. So employers really need to lobby or advocate in Congress for specific policy changes i've seen people advocating for policy changes that will help pharmaceutical companies which is like you know reimburse this oral drugs the same way as you reimburse iv drugs well that only helps pharma you have to identify two or three policies that can really reduce cost for society and then lobby for that because otherwise right now in our system there's nothing stopping pharmaceutical companies from keeping on increasing the prices as well as the opening price being very very high It's
0: interesting that you are going directly to government policy changes. So I'm inferring from what you're saying that it's relatively impossible for a bunch of employers to all get together and tell a pharmaceutical company, no, we're not paying, you know, like you just put this drug on the market at X price and we're not going to pay for it, you know, kind of like period.
1: You can't do that because the problem is like, This is not like a television or a car that you can say you can live without it. I mean, if somebody's got insulin dependent diabetes, they need their insulin. If there is no insulin, they're going to die. So, I cannot pay for the insulin is not an option. It's the same way for cancer chemotherapy. You have a drug that will cure cancer or prolong life by 10 years. You can't say, like, I won't. You have to realize the unevenness of the playing field and say that. If so, if I have monopoly on a product and I am allowed to set the price, no matter how high it is, and you just have to go by whatever I feel like, and not only will I set the price high, but I will also increase it every time I feel like it. And there's nothing legal to stop me from doing that, which is the current state. You can have all the employers join together and still won't be able to solve it because they still have to, somebody has to blink and the employers will blink for the sake of their employees.
0: Well, I asked you that very specific question because there are a number of entities in the marketplace who say that, you know, this is a free market and that pharma obviously has R&D and there's a, you've got market forces at play here and, and whatnot. And it sounds like from what you're suggesting, the issue with that logic is that it is not actually a free
1: market. It's absolutely not a free market. It is the opposite of free market. Free market works like automobiles or televisions. I still marvel that I can buy a a 4K projector for $4,000 and it delivers the most incredible picture. And $4,000 won't even get me half a pill of some of the drugs that I prescribe. The difference is that free market means the buyer and seller can negotiate. And there's an alternative. If I don't like your product, I can live without it, or I can buy another product that does the same thing. Pharmaceutical companies products are not like that. You're giving them prolonged patent protection, 12, 15 years, which they can then continue to pr- prolong. And there's no competition. Many, many cancer drugs are not curative. So if you take one drug, if let's say there are five drugs for myeloma, it doesn't mean that there is no monopoly because a patient needs all of those five drugs. You cannot say I'll, I'll use the one and then when that doesn't work, I won't use the remaining four. So each drug is a monopoly. Monopoly is never a free market and unregulated monopoly is the problem and all you need is just very simple leveling of the playing field. You put in a lot of effort, you did R&D, you developed a great drug, it prolongs life by one year. Let's all agree that for every year of life prolonged, we'll give you 150,000. But suppose you develop a drug and it gives only one month improvement. Please don't ask me for $150,000 a year. Just ask me for something lower. And so some negotiation. There's no hard rule, and that will level the playing field. Recognizing this is not a free market. This is definitely not a free market. Otherwise, we wouldn't have to have this discussion because, you know, the generic drug industry, that's a free market for most generic drugs. And that's why you can go to Costco and buy a whole bucket of Tylenol for five bucks or something.
0: So the issue is not that the reason why patient prices are unaffordable is not because of subpar insurance coverage. It very much could be driven by the fact that the prices themselves are just too high.
1: Yeah. And just to clarify also, I think that I want to make sure everybody understands the price is high, but it's not high just because only the pharma companies are to blame. It's the whole supply chain. Everybody benefits from a high drug price. So everybody's taking their share. Pharma charges 300 for insulin, but I don't know, maybe $75 goes to the PBM. So some, some other money goes to the wholesaler and something might go to the pharmacy. So it's not like pharma is doing this, but the system's helping everyone. So nobody's willing to change it.
0: There's been a whole discussion about what the net versus gross is. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Obviously, there was an executive order recently that said that we are going to have a baseline for Medicare pricing, that we're going to look at other industrialized nations and, and for example, the U.S. would have saved $38 billion last year if, if Medicare paid the same as Australia pays for drugs. The one thing that I heard that is going to be the repercussion of that is that For example, pharma just stops selling drugs to Australia. That There is so much money to be made at this juncture in the United States that they would actually preserve their profit margin by just not selling drugs to any other country. Therefore, you get rid of the baseline and continue what you're doing in the United States. What do you think of that and or this whole most favored nation strategy?
1: idea was proposed, I think, by Peter Bach first, and I support it because I understand in the current climate it's impossible to repeal the Medicare cannot negotiate piece of the law. So until that, this is a bypass around that, so that you can still get a negotiated price even without directly negotiating. In terms of what pharma's response would be, number one, I don't think that negotiating for prices or Having reference prices will reduce the number of innovative drugs. It might reduce some marginal drugs from getting onto the market because they would see that there's really no value in pursuing that. But for the real blockbusters, the real drugs that provide value, there's real money to be made on innovation. The second point is that the fear that pharma won't sell to Australia is the current situation, actually. Not because of the reference price. It's because of the absence of the reference price. And let me explain because I've written about this. The fact that the U.S. is a large market where pharma does not have to negotiate but can set the price lowers the ability of other countries to effectively negotiate with pharma. Because pharma will walk away. And they have walked away. I know that in myeloma and other things where I have written a paper with a person who was previously the head of the health authorities of France, pharma will walk away because they know that if I walk away from France, whatever profit I might have made there, I can just make it by increasing the price in the U.S. So the fact that the U.S. doesn't negotiate is what puts other countries at a disadvantage. If the U.S. decides to negotiate or go to reference pricing, then this walking away is going to be unlikely because what are you going to walk away from? Everywhere you turn, it's the same thing. You have to negotiate.
0: There was a couple of instances where that actually was the case, like I'm thinking of cystic fibrosis. They refused to sell to Canada because they had they came to an impasse.
1: Patients need to understand because pharma has got a very loud voice in the sense that they can advertise on television, whereas I cannot. Most of us don't have that kind of money. So it's very easy for them to say they're putting a price on your life by saying that your life is not worth more than one hundred thousand or something. But the message that we have to keep telling people is when you do value based pricing, you're not putting a price on anybody's life. You're only putting a price on what that drug is worth. And you're telling pharma, please don't sell us a drug that is not worth this much money. And that's just what we do for everything. And when we do that, we have more reason, more money to pay for other things that pay, that will keep our population healthy.
0: Is there anything just kind of given everything that we've talked about and we
1: have talked about a lot of topics today, is
0: there anything that I neglected to ask you that you think is a really
1: important point to make? one subject that people always want me to say, and I'm I'm open about it, is that the problem is not just prescription drug costs. It's, it's actually the whole healthcare costs. It's healthcare costs which are outside of prescription drugs are just as big of a problem. I'm not such a big expert on that. I haven't done my research on that, but I do acknowledge that that's something that has to be reformed as well so that overall healthcare costs are fair, predictable, And second, I'll I'll encourage people to read up uh, the many books written on the subject. But uh, one paper that I wrote is the paper on insulin that I wrote on January 1st in the Mayo Clinic proceedings, because that basically goes into how you can have a hundred year old drug with, you know, such a high price, 10 times higher than other countries.
0: Besides that particular paper, are there any other resources that you would like to direct people to to learn more about your work?
1: I did write a paper this year in Blood Cancer Journal on the high cost of prescription drugs and cancer drugs and uh, I would that's open access and you know people can read that because where in that paper what I do is to look at the solutions for each country is different and then I also wrote a paper on cost-effective therapy of multiple myeloma which is more for physicians because we have a role to play in the sense I cannot change the laws so what can I do as a physician
0: we will also include links in the show notes. Dr. Vincent Rajkumar, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today.
1: Thank you so much, Stacey, for having me.
0: Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.